Today's episode is sponsored by Stages Cycling, makers of industry-leading cycling computers, power meters, heart rate monitors, indoor studio bikes. And when I say industry-leading, talking about last year's Tour de France winner, Tadej Pogacar used a Stages power meter and cycling computer on way to that victory. Boom, shaka halaka. Stimulus listeners, you get 20% off your order on all Stages outdoor products. To access that 20% discount, just use the link in the show notes for this episode. There's no discount code to type in. 20% is applied at checkout after you've used the link. It also doesn't apply to the Stages SB20 smart bike, which is what I use and I love, but eh, such is life. Kazow. We are also sponsored by Panacea Financial. As you know, they've sponsored many episodes over the past few months. They are a financial services company created by doctors for doctors aiming to improve the lives of physicians and physicians in training. And something that they just started is really cool is the Panacea Financial Foundation. And this provides grants to underrepresented minorities in medicine. And actually, let me just read you off the grant page. They say, ethnic and racial minorities are significantly underrepresented in medicine, and the problem is getting worse. For example, 14% of Americans are black, yet they only represent 4% of all physicians. Concerningly, from 1997 to 2017, the percent of students entering medical school from underrepresented minorities fell 16%. And so what they're trying to do is their part to turn that around, or at least help turn that around. They currently have $1,000 grants for residents and fellows. And in spring 2021, they will begin accepting applications for medical school scholarships. I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can learn more about the Panacea Financial Foundation, as well as apply for the grant or coming up soon, the scholarship. Panacea Financial is a division of Sonamec, member FDIC. All right, on that note, let's do the show. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. Our guest today is Dr. Vinay Prasad. He is a practicing hematologist, oncologist, and associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. He studies cancer drugs, health policy, clinical trials, and better decision-making. I mean, he doesn't want better decision-making. I know I do. He's the author of over 250 academic articles. He's got two books that we're going to talk about a bit in our conversation, Ending Medical Reversal and Malignant. Malignant just came out last year. He hosts the Oncology Podcast Plenary Session. And in my mind, okay, so that's like all the, here's the cool stuff he does. But what's the guy underneath it all like? And this was the first time I'd ever met him, although we have many common friends. He is one of the most insightful thinkers in medicine. Whether you agree with him or disagree with him, and I guarantee that some of you are going to disagree with some of the stuff he says, which is great. You know, we don't always like preach to the choir. We'll put on controversy. Just one of the most insightful thinkers in medicine and I think public health. He's also got a massive social media presence. And as you'll hear, that is somewhat to his chagrin. And, you know, you also see that he pulls no punches. 
And in this conversation, we get into a lot of different topics. We talk about the science behind chemotherapy research and our collective delusions about it, collective delusions in public and frankly, collective delusions in medicine. We're going to talk about the science, the ethics and public health implications of mask wearing, the collision between public health and public discourse trade-offs during the pandemic. That is something that does not get a lot of discussion. It's either you do this or you do that. Where is the discussion about trade-offs? Well, it's right here. And Vinay brings the bacon, the difference between efficacy and effectiveness. Now that one's a super nerdy one. That was my own particular question because that's still so confusing to me. And something I didn't expect we were going to get into, but kind of dove deep towards the end of the discussion is school closures or school openings and the wisdom and data surrounding that. And what Vinay had to say, frankly, made me think very differently about this topic. And before we jump in, I'll say that my audio is a bit janky, bit janky, not the usual business, not crystal clear like it is in this intro. We had a systems crash that lost a lot of data, lost the main audio, so had to use this backup, but such is life. And I'll also tell you that Vinay is a fast talker. So if you like to listen at 3x, you might explode your brain. So just take that into account. All right, here we go. Our discussion picks up with Vinay mid-sentence talking about the realities of dissemination of scientific information on Twitter. I think that Obviously, journal articles have very low readership. I mean, there's there's a, there's a tale. There's a few journals that get a lot of eyeballs. And then once you get out of that elite cohort, there are a lot of journals that you'd be lucky if your mom reads it. And even <laughs> she may, you know, even she may not want to read those, those articles. And, and, and that's even just the number of people who click on it, right? I mean, that's right. the stats we have. What about people who actually read every last word in that article? And I struggle to believe that's the majority of people. It's going to be a paucity. And then you go on Twitter and you tweet it. And as much as we wish that Twitter is this great place, uh, democratizing place for dialogue, the reality is it's a very stilted and unidimensional portrayal of the ideas in that paper and who you are. And so you naturally get preaching to the choir, the, the retweets, the likes, and you piss off a bunch of people who see it in the most unfavorable light. And recently, somebody who I work with, he said a rather sort of telling statement, which is that, and this is true for me too, in real life, most people I meet, I like. Uh, but on Twitter, most people I interact with, I hate. And, and and that tells you something about the media itself. I was looking at your Twitter feed last night. I, Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Because, so I'm on there. I'm like, oh, I wonder what Vinay's been talking about in the past month. And I kind of go on per Twitter periodically and sure. you know, kind of post something or see something. And it was, this is not hyperbole. I actually kept scrolling down. I couldn't get through the past eight hours. And I'm thinking, all right, well, I have a couple, I have a couple of questions on this. How do you engage with social media? Um, be, I mean, because, I mean, because, I mean, sometimes you'll say something that's, oh, here's my opinion. But oftentimes these tweets look like sort of like a multi-layered letter to the New England Journal. You know, <laughs> here's the article, here's my opinion, here's, the, here's this and that. Is this just, ah, the mood strikes me? Or are you thinking, okay, I'm pre-planning this. This is important. Here's what I want to get out to the world. So I would say it's more, in my case, the use of Twitter is when mood strikes me. And, uh, you know, maybe I've had a beer or a glass of wine. And so I'm feeling uh, a like chatting. <laughs> Always do it uh, drunk, baby. I'll, I mean, a little bit, um, a little bit to loosen the inhibitions. 
I hope it reflects the way I try to think about problems, which is what is the thing you're going to argue? What's the, you know, try to get the thesis out there. And then why do I feel that way? And I try to make that case. And then, of course, it's stomping on a few of the people in my replies who say insipid things um, and things that are factually incorrect. And I can't do it for everything. Um, but a few things I like to point out the error of the reply. And so, um, you know, so I think that that takes a bit of time. But I mean, to be honest with you, I just I don't know if there are people who spend a lot of time planning tweets. I just could not do it because I'm sort of oversubscribed in other things. Um, so I wouldn't have the time to do it if I wanted to do it. As much as I hate Twitter, I, I still like it a little bit. I think it is a nice way to get some ideas out there. For instance, I think the thing you might be alluding to is there's a New England Journal paper uh, correspondence from Sweden this, mm -hmm. this week on schools, which I thought yeah. was actually quite interesting and yeah. actually really relevant. I, I do want to get to that yeah. particular tweet. As I, it was, I was like, man, this is it's like a masterpiece. I mean, you should, like, you, could, you could frankly teach a day of medical school. Ba on that letter. Well, uh, not yeah. me, but, or someone could. Yeah. I mean, it's All a good letter. It. Yeah. But, good letter. okay. So you, so you put these things out and you don't say, hey, here's, here's something that's out there. What does the cloud think? It's just, here's what this says. Here's how I interpret it. Here's how it should be interpreted. What is your intent when you put that out there? I mean, what, what are you hoping for? And are you disappointed in that? Or do you kind of get what you expect? I guess I would say that maybe what you're identifying is something about me that's far beyond Twitter, which is that uh, I have opinions on things. And, uh, you know, if we were having dinner and a dinner party and we were talking about, I don't know, political events or travel or playing basketball or golf, I mean, I, I don't I can't claim that I have opinions on everything, but a lot of things I do have opinions on. And so where I have opinions, I'm going to I'm going to toss it out there at the dinner conversation. You're going to toss out your opinions. We're going to have a good back and forth. So I just kind of view Twitter as an extension of that. To me, it's not the same as, you know, it's not me writing a journal article. I would use different language and I would do it in a different mindset. Um, it's not me even writing an opinion piece or blog post where I would spend a little bit more time. It's even different than podcasting. It is really kind of just, this is an article and I'm going to show you how I interpret this article. And also, I guess I must admit that, I mean, if you, if you look at the last eight hours, these are issues that have been in the news and are popularly discussed. And, and I've been a little irritated by a lot of the things I read or see. And so I'm, I'm entering into the conversation with some emotional feelings that I, I have not seen things that I like, and I've seen things I don't like. And so I want to kind of correct the record. But for instance, like if it was something totally cold, so let's say there's some journal article on some totally to a topic that we don't have, we haven't been having a conversation about nationally, maybe the tweets you would see would be a little bit different. I would probably spend a little bit more time trying to explain to the audience why this issue matters and what this article shows. I want to get back to your intent with those opinion things. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, you'd say we study these different chemotherapeutic agents. Here's what we got. Here's kind of like in the methodology, this kind of, okay, it's super wonky. Nobody yes. gives a shit. Yes. Right. <laughs> <The only laughs> I've had many you. tweets like that. <laughs> yeah. Only, Nobody gives only, a shit. only yeah. you. Retweets zero. Yeah. Comment zero. But when you put it on an opinion piece, I mean, that's when you get a thousand retweets and a hundred replies and all this, and it's incendiary. So do you think that when you put your opinion out there like that, yeah. are you hoping or do you think that it moves the needle at all? Or is it just this needs to be said? I need to have that out there. That's an interesting question. I guess I would say that um, I I'm not picking my opinion because I believe it will be favorable to the crowd. And in fact, um, I'm not trying to grow my followers. In fact, I'm trying to lose my followers. I'm trying to lose 10 pounds this year. And I'm trying to lose 10,000 followers. I want to get rid of them, drop them like dead weight. Have you watched Cobra Kai? I've watched the first two seasons. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give- Don't it, spoil yeah. season three. I haven't started season three yet. 
you're kind of like Sensei Kreese, you know, you want to, you want to get the, <laughs> the dead weight out of Cobra Kai. Yeah. Okay. I, um, I, I might be like Kreese rising up from the dead, but, but I think what I, what I mean by that is, is that I sometimes see people on Twitter and they talk about, they want to build a brand and get a lot of people and get a lot of followers. And I say, mm, that's not my, that's not my interest. I want to go there and read things that interest me, have people show me things I wouldn't see otherwise. And to say things that I think are interesting and maybe get somebody to push back in a interesting way or say something interesting, spinning off me, building on what I'm saying, or pushing me back. I'm looking for that interesting stuff. And you got to look a long time before you get it. You do occasionally get it on Twitter. You get a lot more of it in podcasts, actually. So I actually, you know, probably like you, I mean, I binge listen a lot. I'm listening to a lot of podcasts. And I guess I would say we are in an unusual moment, which is that COVID-19 has made a lot of people whose day-to-day is quite dull and uninteresting suddenly very interesting. Um, And so... You know, my tweet on a New England Journal correspondence, um, you know, a letter to the editor of the New England Journal, uh, it would not have generated 800 retweets or whatever it did generated uh, eight, a year ago, for instance. Right, it can right. only do that because the whole world is waiting with bated breath for what happens with COVID-19. So it's an unusual time, and I recognize that. But I guess I'd say it's not my goal. Um, it's just to say, I don't know. I mean, people follow me the way, you know, it, I mean, I'm just going to say what I think. I, that's always what I've on, that's only and always what I've done on that website. Oh, this, this, this is great. So, okay. So I, to, to summarize, it sounds like when you do this, it scratches an itch. It's not that I guess it does. I, I have the yeah. intent for this. It's going to, you know, it's going to, going to sway this, but yeah, it's scratching itch. but it, okay. But, but actually let me push on that a little bit. So I guess I would say the, the motivation is that I feel like I want to say it. However, once I decide that I want to say something, I do spend time calculating how to phrase it so that it is persuasive. Um, I, I do think it's an important, not just Twitter, but in life, that if you have an opinion, you want to flip votes. I mean, I'm not just trying to preach mm, the choir. I want to okay. flip a few votes. Um, so I'm trying to put, sometimes I, I, I make mistakes like anyone else, you know, going too hot, a little bit too <laughs> caustic, a little too insulting, a little too you know, condescending potentially. I mean, those are things that we all run the risk of. Um, but sometimes I try to be more earnest and genuine. And I think I had some tweets like that yesterday, but you know, I think you, you've tried to find it the right thing, but my goal is to flip votes. So once I have an issue that I care about, I want to flip the votes. Yeah. We have a common friend in Tom Delory and mm. it, it, a good friend of mine. Yeah. Tom, I mean, Tom is, uh, for the past decade is, was my heme onk mentor in ah, emergency medicine. Yeah. You couldn't have picked better. Couldn't pick better. So I asked Tom, I mean, so, someone we both love, he's just oh, such a wonderful human being. I said, okay, Tom, is there any inside baseball about Vinny that I need to bring out in this podcast? And he said, you know, here is this one story. I went to LA for a heme meeting and I was just sitting at dinner to introduce to a hematologist from MD Anderson. He's a very nice guy. And we're chatting. He says, hey, <laughs> do you work with Vinay Prasad? And I said, yes. <laughs> I know do this. you know him? I said, yeah, I know him. His office across the hall from mine. And he says, well, is, is he a, well, is he a, and I went, are you asking me if he's an asshole? And the guy <laughs> broke up laughing. <laughs> and he said, yes. So I told him the truth that he's great to work with and a robust sense of humor. And I know, I mean, you, you and I both used to work in the same area in Portland and, you know, you're known as this, you know, great teacher and your students love you. And it's like, but kind of this, this persona, I guess it's what we've been talking about. It's kind of like, you know, you, you have no qualms about poking the bear. And I wonder, do you think that's where that comes from? I guess I would say I think that um, between the years 2015 and probably 2017, which I think is when this story emerged, um, you know, most of what I was tweeting, Twitter was a different place back then. 
uh, it was it was not um, among medical Twitter. It was not. I don't think it was politically polarized. I don't think there were very no. many doctors talking anything politics. We actively stayed away from it. Yes, we actively stayed away from it. I mean, and I think that's long been the the teaching in medicine, which is that your patients will be from many different political stripes. So you should probably not advertise that. I mean, just like all good dinner parties, leading with um, <laughs> politics and religion are not always the best things to start with. Um, but, you know, so there, there's a little bit of that. So we didn't talk a lot about that back then. Um, and so I was in the cancer drug policy circle. And I guess I would say that in the cancer drug policy circle, I am admittedly in, in an outlier in a minority view. And my view is simply that um, there are a few cancer drugs that work super well and they're worth whatever those companies charge for them. There are many, many cancer drugs that don't work that well, and they are not worth what the companies charge for them. And the only reasons the companies get away with selling them that way and running these trials that have many, many flaws is because the companies are greasing all of the wheels by paying many expert physicians. And so I was very critical of financial conflict of interest. I still am. I was very critical of these companies. But what that means is that um, among oncologists who followed me on Twitter, I believe between the years 2015 and 2017, a lot felt the way this gentleman felt, which is that he must be an asshole because he's saying people who take money from Pfizer and prescribe Pfizer drugs are biased and, and often complicit in bad trial design. And this person probably did not feel that way. So I don't know exactly who this person is, so I don't want to say I know them, but I suspect that they are offended because... I made them feel a little guilty about what they were doing, which probably is cheerleading for some lousy cancer drug while being on the payroll from the company while working at a venerable institution, which is, you know, sort of unfortunately the norm. And since you're emergency medicine, I think like EM, IM, family medicine people, you all get it in a way that people in oncology don't get it. Like for you guys and gals, it's it's like problematic, but within oncology, it's not that way. So I think that's probably why, because of Twitter, a little bit how it flattens people, and also because my views were really against the grain and still remain so, um, I think that that's why this person felt this way. I'm going to piggyback on that. Sure. Because there was an article titled Clinical Trial Evidence Supporting U.S. Food and Drug Administration Approval of okay. Novel Cancer Therapies Between 2000 and 2016. All right, long, long, long-winded, but all right, what's, what's the deal with all the stuff that got approved over a 16-year period? Recently okay. published in JAMA, and the conclusion was this. I was reading from the paper. It says, data available at the time of FDA drug approval indicated that novel cancer therapies were associated with substantial tumor responses, but with prolonging median overall survival by only 2.4% months. Approval data from 17 years of clinical trials suggested that patients and clinicians typically had limited information available regarding the benefits of novel cancer treatments at market entry. So prolongation of median overall survival, 2.4 months. I mean, kind of yeah. spring ports off what you're saying, which seems to me contrary to how chemotherapy is viewed by society yes. and medicine. And I, and I wonder, you're talking about kind of this, like the dark arts of it, but I wonder in the bigger sense, if we actually have a collective delusion about what chemotherapy actually is. I think the answer is 
is kind of a mixed bag. I'll unpack it a little bit. I mean, I think there is there's some people in the general public when you say chemotherapy, they still have those images from the 1980s or 1990s of, you know, a movie where somebody is vomiting in the toilet and their hair falls out and they feel terrible. And that's what chemo means to them. And so I think to a large degree, you know, in clinical practice, we often have to dispel that myth because we have better antiemetics and um, not all the regiments, although some do uh, result in alopecia, but not all of them do. So that's what some people mean by it. But there's another movement, of course, which is that these new cancer drugs are miraculous game changers, revolutions, cures. This is a myth that, you know, is brought to you by the nightly news, by media coverage. Um, And I think there are a few of these new drugs that really are tremendous steps forward. I'm happy to admit that, and I use all the drugs, but the reality is that many of them are not huge leaps forward. They're very modest, and to kind of put that 2.4 months in more of a context, I would say that when the FDA approves drugs, it's roughly one-third, one-third, one-third. So one-third of the drugs they're approving, they don't know if it makes you live longer. They don't know if you live better. They just know that the tumors shrink 30% or more in some fraction of the patients. So that's the response rate drugs. All we know is we gave it to 50 people and 20 of them had tumors shrink 30% or more. Uh, That to me is very low level of evidence. The next cohort is the third where we don't know if you live longer, we don't know if you live better, but we know progression-free survival, this composite surrogate endpoint that they've invented, the time until tumors get 20% or worse or the time until you die um, or the time until new lesions, that that endpoint was delayed. And when drugs are approved based on PFS improvements, the benefit is typically about three months. A three-month PFS improvement is the average PFS improvement of a new approved cancer drug. PFS meaning? Progression-free survival, which is oh. this. We can talk about it a little bit more, okay. but it is a okay. time until something happens. The time until the patient passes away or the time until the patient's tumors get 20% bigger than the smallest they ever were, which is much more likely. It's a very arbitrary line in the sand. And then a third of them are approved because you live longer. And in that third, it tends to be about the estimate that I think Lars has offered 2.4 months. I've seen other estimates about 2.1 months, but something like that. So what's the point here? The point here is that I think the average oncology drug offers a modest or marginal benefit. I think a person who's a 55-year-old person with cancer, they're going to look at a two-month benefit, maybe going from median of five to median of seven months. They might view that as, as worth it to them, a step forward. Um, I don't want to say that that's not the case, but I think many of us looking at that from a broad picture would say there's still a lot of room for improvement. That's still a 55-year-old person is going to die on average in seven months, and we really owe it to them to do better, particularly when we're going to charge him $240,000 for a year of that drug. So I think the glass, people say, are you glass half full, half empty gut person? I was like, in some of these cases, the glass is you know, only 5% full. You know, We have to be honest, 95% empty. I want to get a little bit more into that PFS because when we look at the outcomes that are measured in cancer clinical trials, personally, do you see a discrepancy between what's actually measured and what actually would matter to cancer patients? Yes. I mean, I think that the answer to that is absolutely. I mean, whether you have cancer or whether you have any condition in life, the two things you care about is how long you live. You want that to be probably on average as long as you can get and how good you feel while you're alive. And in fact, if those two were actually directly pitted against each other, often people prioritize how they feel over how long they live. I think that like, you know, that's a real human emotion. The truth about cancer drugs is the ones that make you live longer tend also to make you live a little bit better for those months. You know, they delay the the morbidity towards the end. So there are very few discordant examples of quality of life in PFS. 
That's what we care about. The truth is only about one in three drugs that comes to the US market does so on the basis of that data. Two out of every three drugs that comes to the US market, we don't know you live longer. We don't know you live better when the drug comes to the market. We only know that it changes the appearance of the tumor on an X-ray, a CAT scan, an MRI, or the volume of the tumor in a blood aliquot. And that is a surrogate endpoint, suffers from the same problems that surrogate endpoints suffer from in many other situations. That just because you improve the surrogate doesn't mean you actually improve what people care about. And I think that's sort of a theme, a deep theme in like my work and, and, and the book I wrote, Malignant, and those sorts of things, yeah. You speak to patients about this directly, and, and I'm curious how you would coach them. And, and now speaking to the larger audience that say someone is diagnosed with cancer, it could be a solid, solid tumor, it can be hematologic. They're offered therapies like, well, we could do this, we could do this. I, I've been in this, these discussions with mm-hmm. people and I'm thinking like, I am just so damn confused. I don't mm-hmm. even think the doctor really knows the answer to this. What do you think are the important questions to ask when being offered? Because it's, there's usually, here you go, here, here's your different options you choose. So I guess I would say a few things. I mean, if you're the patient or the loved one in the room, you want to have a loved one in the room for every patient. I mean, you want it to be more than just one person. You want an extra set of ears, somebody who can help you remember what the doctor said, maybe take some notes, maybe help you ask the questions you might forget about. So, I mean, I really do believe it's important to have that support system in the room. Um, the questions I think patients often gravitate to is how does this drug work? Is this one of those new immune drugs? Does it unleash the immune system? Does it go into the cell and like a key fit in the lock and do this? I would say gravitate away from the questions of how the mechanism of the drug works and towards the questions of what might you expect? What's the average benefit the drug provides? What's the better case scenarios? What are the worst case scenarios? What are the side effects? And how do you know this drug works? Those kinds of practical questions. For most people with most cancers, fortunately, the first few clinical decisions that are made tend to be supported based on well-done randomized trials that show improvements in patient outcomes. I mean, thankfully, you know, if somebody is coming with lung cancer, most of the frontline regimens have randomized trials showing survival benefit over alternative options. And so you can say with some confidence that we know patients who take this treatment over this other treatment, they tend to live X longer or X percentage longer, that sort of thing. Your question is a deep question, which is inevitably in oncology, you will encounter situations where you don't have a randomized trial. The patient comes in, they have progressed through one or two options. You don't have a randomized study to hang your hat on. What do you do with the patient when you have a drug that, you know, it shrinks tumors in 20% of people, but I don't know if that means they live longer or live better. I don't know if that means it's worth the cost. I don't know if that means it's worth the side effects. How do you counsel people? And I think that that's, that's the humanity and the art of medicine, which is that my philosophy is that the right decision for the patient is not necessarily what I would do if I were in their roles. It's what they would do knowing everything that I know. And so I spend a lot of time trying to explain what do we know about the drug? What do we not know about the drug? What are the uncertainties? What are the toxicities? What are the alternatives? And really try to empower people to make the decision that's right for them, for their family, for their circumstances. I think that from the patient and family perspective, it's a super hard question to answer. When I think in the emergency department when you offer a choice. So say someone has chest pain. Okay. Here is your risk of having a heart attack and dying in the next 30 days. It's 2%. Do you want to do X or Y? And that is kind of concrete. I think people really get that dead, not dead, heart attack, not heart attack. But when you get into the nuance of all of the issues surrounding cancer treatment, it becomes 
this onion of confusion and then and emotions like how how do i even decide well okay do i want to live with this problem do i want to live with this problem and often often it seems to come down to that which bad thing am i okay living with the risk of happening i think you are accurate in in a number of ways that the different people will look at things differently different people may be willing to tolerate certain side effects or toxicities to different degrees based on that potential for upside, the potential to live a little bit longer. I haven't quantified this, but I think what you're saying makes me wonder that if you were to survey 100 people about some new cancer drug that has, you know, it causes ocular damage, but it lowers the protein level of the, of the cancer, which we have a drug that's not so dissimilar from this, versus a pill that lowers your rate of heart attacks by 1% if you take it for the next five years, I wonder if the range of sort of, uh, or, or the variability in, in how people answer those questions is different for cancer drugs. I actually, I do wonder. I, I'll be honest with you, I worry that in many clinical scenarios, these sort of rich discussions are not taking place, and what you have instead is a doctor coming in saying rather curtly, okay, this stopped working, we're gonna try X. And it's just that cycle of oncology. We're just going to try, 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 try without really having that sort of back and forth about a patient to get a sense of what they really want, what's worth it to them, what they want to do and what they don't want to do. And I, and I worry a little bit that that still exists to some degree in oncology, this sort of inertia of just treating, treating, treating and not having those kind of longer, tougher conversations. The reflex can be explain, explain. But I, it's, it sounds like when you get to that point, you've got to listen. And you've got to absorb to help guide. Oh, often the case, yeah. All doctors learn, not just oncologists, but I'm sure emergency <laughs> men, you know, all doctors learn. Yeah. There is sometimes a value when you feel like there's something that's unsaid and you just sort of sit in the room and you just take a few extra moments and just sit there silently. I mean, I can, I can only imagine, but I'm sure there are many times in your careers you sat there silently for a few extra moments and the patient said, oh, by the way, by the way. I'm also having, and it was such an important thing that it probably changed your management a great deal. Um, and to be honest, and maybe in your line of work even more so than mine because of the acuity. Um, but I think there's, there's always that importance of sort of letting people say what they want to say when they want to say it. And I'm th thinking about a lot of things I did in my medical career that were, I mean, I'll frankly say of low utility to the patient, potentially harmful, but it really, it's just, this is how we do things. This is just how it's done. And I actually gives me chills in a bad way to think about that. Man, boy, the practice of medicine, there are so many things that are barbaric when you, when you look back 20 years ago, what, what we were doing. And when it comes to oncology, I've seen dozens and dozens of patients clearly on the final trajectory of their lives. It, it, like not even a question, not just, well, I don't know. Well, you know, it could, things could turn around. No, right. it's not going to turn around. Right. Being flogged with chemo and or radiation, like, okay, well, it's, you know, it's their choice. Sure. I mean, is that is what we're talking about? But then I talked to him about, all right, well, what's, what's going on? What's your treatment plan? And they said, oh, my oncologist said, as you're saying, here's the next thing. And palliation was never brought up to them, or at least it never registered as an option for whatever reason. And I was saying, okay, this does not seem right. And you know, that patient would come in repeatedly and everyone would say like, oh my gosh, that, that poor person is back. And like, they just really, they need a palliative care consult. It was like the wires were not connecting. And I was thinking like, all right, this is just a one-off and one doctor, but it was this repeated pattern. I have friends that do palliative care just today. 
they bemoan this that, man, I wish that we could have a come to Jesus meeting with our oncology department and say, how can we meet in the middle and really present this option to patients? Yeah, I guess I'm saying I'm, I'm sorry that, that you feel that way. Um, and I think that you're not alone in how you feel. I mean, I hope to some degree that this is generational, that it will get better with the new generation of trainees who I think are incredibly empathetic and, and conscious about palliative care and the importance of early palliative care and the importance of goals of care discussion, figure out what people want, what's right for them, how much an individual would be willing to, to really gamble sometimes on some of these experimental or third line mm, or fourth line therapies. I'm hopeful that it gets better. But at the same time, I want to acknowledge that the way you feel about it the way your colleagues may have told you they feel about it is the way I felt about it too at some times when I've witnessed some other things and witnessed people practice differently than I did. And I think to some degree, it is one of the barriers that we have had in oncology towards there are people out there who might have been great oncologists, but they saw something someday that they did not like. They felt like the patient was being pressured into getting some therapy that had serious toxicity and side effects. And that pushed them away from the field. And so I think we've lost, I'm certainly we've lost some people that way. I guess I would say that very early on in my career, I was cognizant of that risk and I've done everything humanly possible to avoid that pitfall. And I think the cognitive pitfall on the oncology side, I don't think it's like malice. Like I don't think the oncologist, yeah, you're right. It's not malice. Definitely not. It's it's really, sometimes what it is, is you you saw somebody and you were hopeful that you could get them through X amount of treatment. Like you could do this. Totally hope. Totally hope. It's totally hope. You could do this for them. And then as they were deteriorating in front of you and that hope that you could achieve that was dwindling, you, you couldn't see that reality because you felt like you were too wedded to your initial impression. You were too wedded to what you wanted to do that you can't see where you are in the moment. You're blind to it. And you're blind to it out of a, a positive, I mean, out of a good desire, but you're blind to it like anyone can be blind to anything. You know, the way a radiologist can miss something staring them in the x-ray. You know, you're blind to it in that very real way. And so sometimes when a trainee comes to me and they talk about some patient that they've been seeing for a while, and the patient had this and then this and then this, and then, then their LFTs go up to this, and then it goes this, and then they were hospitalized with this, and then this, and then this. And then they say, you know, I'm sending their tumor for this, and I'm testing for this, and I'm doing for this, and I got these biopsy schedule, I got this schedule, I got this schedule. And I was like, you know, I appreciate all that you're doing, showing me you care. You really care about this person. Mm-hmm. Have you talked to them about what they want, you know? And they have become blind to that in their own care because they are so invested in just clearing that, that one more hump. We've had a couple conversations with Barry Curzons. He's the, the Dalai Lama's personal physician. And wow. We had our one conversation that, that came on last year. We, actually, we just recently had the follow-up. And he really focuses in on moving from empathy to compassion, from putting yourself in their shoes to wishing them to be well or to be happy. You know, in medicine, being well is kind of, it's, <laughs> it's a loaded term. Yes. But I think that that empathy, that full deep connection that you are 100% enmeshed, I, I, I wonder if that's an aspect of it that we're going to go all in. We're going to do all this stuff. I identify as the person who will get this done and figure all of this out versus compassion. What you're alluding to is, hey, let's just take a step back take a half step back from this. And how does this fit into the arc of your life? And let me help guide you. I mean, and they're two very different mindsets. Yes, absolutely. One can be empathetic to the point of paralysis. One can be empathetic to the point of bad decision-making. And one must always retain 
some independence, some compassion. You want the doctor who grieves for you, but you you need the doctor to have a little bit of space so they can see things a little bit objectively. I would say that that is the case. I'd say there's another thing that goes on that's related to this. The way we tell stories to ourselves in oncology, the way we understand what happened, reinforces some of these problems, which is, if something good happens to the patient, it's because I did all that shit. I did all that. That's why they had something good happen to them. If something bad happens to them, it's because I didn't do extra things. I should have done more. We never think to ourselves that something good happened because they had indolent biology. And actually, you know, even if I had done a little bit less, they still would have had a good outcome. We never think to ourselves something bad happened. And even if I had done a lot more, I would have just exposed them to more toxicity and harms. And we don't think that way even when there are randomized control trials that should tell us that, that we should think that way. So for instance, one example is oh, there's a certain type of cancer, ovarian cancer. Women get a certain treatment. We know in this stage of ovarian cancer that they're all going to relapse. And the way we follow them for relapse is we wait to see what symptoms they have and we see wait for, for tumors on CAT scans to grow. And when tumors on CAT scans grow or they have symptoms from their recurrent cancer, we treat them with chemotherapy. Now, of course, it's logical and seductive that why can't we just make a blood test that tell us, tells us a little sooner that the cancer is going to come back, just a little sooner, and give the chemotherapy that we know will shrink the tumors in a future date, give it earlier, because if you give it earlier, it's got to be better. So that's another sort of classic oncology thinking thought process. Earlier has got to be better. More has got to be better. And then we did a randomized control trial where we assessed these women with CA125 antigen, and we started chemotherapy at that point versus waiting to see when they had presentation, clinical symptoms, and tumors on scans. And we found we gave a lot more chemotherapy by testing early. You're giving more chemotherapy. Unfortunately, the patients didn't live longer. Their quality of life was worse. I tell that just because you know, there are anecdotes and on call, not anecdotes, there are, there are data points that those sorts of philosophies don't work well. I'll give you another example, which is that once a tumor leaves the primary site, once the breast cancer has left the breast, once the lung cancer has left the lungs, we're not typically in the business of cutting out the lung tumor and cutting out the breast tumor because it's already escaped. It's metastatic. And yet there are situations in oncology where doctors still treat the primary rather aggressively saying that, well, you know, there's not a lot of disease elsewhere. Most of it is here. We should still remove the breast. We should still give breast radiotherapy. And they've done randomized studies. And those randomized studies show that that does not improve survival. It's just adding toxicity and invasiveness that doesn't improve survival. And yet there will still be some oncologists who say, well, it's in the right person. You still remove the breast, even though the horse has left the barn. And they don't see the burden the other way, that you must prove to me that in some subgroup that this benefits patients. I guess I would say that, yes, part of it is the emotional challenge that comes with the fact that it is not easy to let someone go in your personal life, in your professional life. It's not easy to let them go. You don't want to let them go. You love them. You care for them. You care about them. But also, it, it is a number of cognitive biases that exist in this profession because of who we are in our prof and our history, where that doctors who once were aggressive, who once did crank up the dose, they actually did cure Hodgkin's, you know? They, they, a lot of people told them, you're gonna kill that guy by cranking up that dose, and they cured him. So they've had that emotional burst, you know, in, in the 60s, and, and that legacy is still infolded in oncology. So we're in more treatments, better early treatments, better toxicities, better kind of field. We need to break ourselves of some of these habits. Do you ever find that you embellish to patients, embellish what you say to get people or patients to do what you want? I guess I would say that um, I think people do a lot of that, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I think COVID-19 is a great example of people doing a lot of that. 
you want people to do this, you want people to do that, you're going to say it's, it's a miracle, it's a parachute, it's this, that, the other. I guess I would say I try very, very hard not to do that. I think it's wrong to do that. Uh, why do I say that? At least in my line of work, I'll tell you why I think I, I find some challenges with that. Um, there are many drugs we have in oncology that I want to concede are beneficial. You know, they are extending somebody's life, but they're not a wonder drug. You know, it's not a magic bullet. But let's say it's doing something positive, right? Let's say that. It's, 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 I believe it's slowing the growth of this tumor. It's probably going to make you live longer. Let's say we believe that. It's also giving the person aching in the hands and feet. Who decides is the aching in the hands and feet worth the benefit that it may be providing? Who decides that? If I go in the room and week after week I upsell this drug, how new it is, how shiny it is, how well it's developed, if I show videos of the molecular mechanism, the drug going in there and binding to the site and doing this and that and the other, and if I go in and talk about how great the drug is, how I was, at, I was at a meeting, I was talking to the investigators, they talk about how it's really promising, it's going to be used early and often and all this stuff. If I go in and I talk about the side effects are manageable and this, that and the other, I mean, if I go in and I, I make it seem like the drug is better than it is. I am taking the patient's autonomy away from them, I feel. I'm taking away their ability to decide, is the upside worth it to them? Because only they know what the aching in the hands and feet is like. I don't know what that's like. I can't feel their aching. So I want to tell them as accurately as I can about what the drug might be giving them so that they can decide on a, and every day the patient puts the pill in the mouth, they're deciding, they're making a choice that it is still worth it to them to take the pill. And so if I upsell, if I distort, I will take that away from them. And I don't want to do that in my line of work. Now, maybe, maybe ever so often you meet a young person with Hodgkin's or something like that, extremely curable, and they come in and they say, I don't want chemotherapy at all. I just want to die of this disease because I've seen on TV chemotherapy bad. Mm, perfect, yeah. You know, so, so yeah. this is the example that's more like your line of work. In that case, I want to be clear. I, I don't view what I'm going to do here as upselling I view it as correcting a delusion, which is that they, you know, okay. so that's how I would at least frame it to myself so I can sleep at night, but also how I sincerely believe it. That if I had a 22 year old, and believe me, there have been such people um, in the institutions I've worked in the last few years, a 22 year old who says, I don't want that treatment. And I'm like, look, we're talking about six cycles of ABVD. It is not that bad in the scheme of, I mean, I, I tell you, if this was the worst treatment we have, it's not the worst one. It's quite manageable, quite bearable. We can walk, we can get you through, we'll get you through the nausea. We can give you a lot of medicines. Um, they say, no, I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it, I just want to die of this disease. I say, I'm talking about like, we, this is a curative treatment, we're talking about 90% cure rates, you know? So in those cases, I think this is closer to what you're saying, which I think is is that you you're not going to let someone get away with saying no very easily. I mean, you're going to yes, really, yes. yeah, you're going to unpack why they're saying no. You're going to really understand what their concerns and fears are. And if those are ill-founded or unjustified, you're going to smash those concerns and fears because they are not factually true. If, however, their concerns and fears are real, um, like the liver cancer patient dying of cancer, that this drug is only improving my survival, you know, one month, why do I need this hand foot syndrome? Then I think you're going to have to be empathetic to it and, and you don't want to upsell it. I want to switch gears. You had mentioned your book, Malignant. I want to talk about your other book, Ending Medical Reversal. I'll bet you that you had this too at med school graduation. I can remember our graduation speaker said, I went to med school in the South, so I'm just going to do this here. Said, all right, y'all, I'm going to tell you right now, 50% of what y'all just learned the past four years is wrong. In a decade, you're going to say, that's a bunch of horseshit. Problem <laughs> is, y'all don't know what that 50% is. 
<laughs> oh no! Oh no! So now, of course, right? Like that. We we all know that expression. We all yep. know that saying. I mean, I, Frank, I was like, oh my god, you're totally full of it. You know, we, I mean, we we had we had learned the stuff, baby. We yeah. know stuff, and it, it turns out, right? There's more than the kernel of truth in there. I mean, I I've oh, watched yeah. it happen. I'm sure you know you've you've watched it happen. Yeah. I mean, in real time, it's not. I mean, it's not quite fifty percent. That's that's a little bit of hyperbole, I think. Yes. There's so many parts of this. I'm thinking, boy, it seems like medical reversal is sort of part of medical research. I mean, number one, we hold randomized control trials to be the gold standard of methodology. And you know, when there's enough of them to sway opinion and opinion to practice change. And now with, with how we, we do education, the knowledge translation window is really short. And I mean, frankly, it just takes one randomized control trial to change practice. I've seen that happen in the past few years. Yes, yes. Piggybacking on that, I think one of the big challenges is that once you lock in a practice, it is way harder to undo yes. than it is to accept. You, you summarize like a half of my the book anymore. No, <laughs> I mean, you summarize a fair bit of it. Um, we don't do much more than what you did, except we try to quantify a lot of those things over a lot of years to try to quantify it. But I mean, I, I mean, I think at the spirit of what you're saying, I agree with everything you're saying, which is that there are some things we do in biomedicine that we know without a doubt we're benefiting our patients on average. In fact, many years ago, there was a project by Fee Godley and colleagues from the British Medical Journal. They surveyed 3,000 random practices, and at least a quarter, you're like, there's not really much of a question there. Multiple randomized control trials show benefit. Keep doing that stuff. There's some things we do to this day that we do it, but we know it don't help. I mean, we got randomized trials that show that it doesn't, it doesn't have benefit, maybe 5%, 15%. And there's this huge swath of things that we do. We do because... The guy who taught me oncology, right. the guy and gals taught me oncology, they did it. And they did it because their, their forebears did it, and they did it because their forebears did it. And it's just been passed along. And of that, there's a lot of uncertainty. And, and then we've done some investigations that sometimes those practices for which there is truly equipoise, and they were never really based on firm data, they're often based on plausible or circumstantial data. When they are subjected to very rigorous studies, what percent of them falter, are validated, or failed? And it really is about 40% fail, 40% validated, and about 20%, again, the, we're, we're kicking the can further. It's still inconclusive, so we need more studies. And so we call that the medical reversal, that when you test established medical practice that we've been doing day in, day out for decades, and it does not improve outcomes, that those represent missteps. You're asking a very philosophical question, which is, isn't this inevitable a part of scientific method? And I, to some degree, agree with you. You'll never have a medical system that never, ever missteps. It will misstep. It's guaranteed it's going to misstep. This is a stochastic business. However, the rate with which we're misstepping is very, very high right now. And that's in part because the incentives to adopt a technology based on circumstantial evidence, they are very, very high. The company wants you to do it. Just start using this device. Just start using this catheter. Just start using this probe. Just start doing this. They want you to do it. The, the enthusiastic proponents want you to do it. Yeah, look. Look how cool the pictures are. Look how much easier it makes it. Look how it should work, right? It's, it, it pushes the rectum away from the prostate. Less radiation hits the rectum. That's got to be better. you know. So there are all these stories we tell ourselves as to why they're going to be beneficial. And we live in a regulatory environment where the regulators don't say, hey, prove it before you can sell it. They often, <laughs> you know, they often go along with it and say, yeah. you can sell this. And so yeah. for those reasons, we do, I think you're right, knowledge translation is happening faster. So we have many products that are used and then we later find out they don't work. So we've all lived through those kind of flip-flops. I think they will always exist. Even in the perfect system, they will exist. But I think the rate with which they occur right now 
is only because our system is so incredibly for-profit um, and so incredibly in pursuit of novelty that we forget to ask if it actually helps people. As you're saying that, it makes me think of this question that I, I, I have had for years and I still don't understand. And it's like it now with COVID therapies, these two words have been dissected and they kind of get like weaponized and be, beat each other over the head with it. Can you explain to me, as someone who truly does not understand, the difference between effective and efficacious? <laughs> what, what is this? I mean, is it, I think I feel like I should understand this, but I still don't. I guess I would say that the fundamental difference is efficacy is concerned with. It's a word that is concerned with how something works in ideal circumstances. And historically, in science, we have wanted to find things that work. And so we have done a lot of efficacy testing to show that under the right set of circumstances with very compliant patients who have very good liver function tests, who come to all their visits and take all their pills and tolerate side effects and don't complain too much, you know, with these perfect sort of Olympian theoretical patients, that the drug does something like prevents them from having heartburn or lowers the rate of MI or slows the growth of their cancer. So that's efficacy, how something works under ideal circumstances or settings. Typically, efficacy has historically been assessed in randomized control trials, those pristine conditions where we can show, yes, this does offer some benefits under these very contrived but you know somewhat realistic circumstances of the perfect, the perfect sort of setting, ideal settings. Effectiveness is concerned with how well products perform when you let everyone at them, when you let the drug loose and people are older and frailer and taking four other medicines and forget to tell, take the pill on Monday or Tuesday. Effectiveness is, to some degree, what public health really cares about. And that's why it's so relevant in COVID because I don't want to say, I don't, everything is so polarized. So I don't want to pick a real example, but let's say, let's say- Oh no, go ahead, pick a real example, please. <laughs> I mean, I guess I can say the Danish mask study. Maybe we can start. We can perfect, start with, perfect. Yeah, the Danish yeah. mask study. So the Danish mask study, you know, it's a randomized control trial of several thousand people that asks a very specific question, which is by wearing a mask, you're randomized to told to wear a mask in public when you go out. And here's a box of 50 surgical masks, which is actually a better mask than that cloth bandana you're wrapping around your face. I mean, it's a better mask. They're giving you the box of it. They're telling you to wear it. You're randomized to that or usual care where you are not advised to do that. And in fact, it was it took place at a time and place where they weren't doing a whole lot of mask wearing, okay? And it is asking the hypothesis by wearing this surgical mask out in public, is there a 50% or more reduction at the rate with which you get COVID? Okay, so it's not testing the hypothesis. It protects others, not me. It's testing the hypothesis. It protects me. And what they find is... With, I, I will argue, adequate power to detect, um, it's been a while since I looked at the study, but I think it was something like a, a 1% or 2% primary event rate in both arms and a 50% reduction. They find, I think, 1.8% of people get COVID in one arm and 2.1% get in the other arm. Absolutely no difference at the rate of COVID acquisition, sort of a broader confidence interval, but it's a confidence interval that excludes a 50% or more reduction. So the Danish mask study shows you that this randomized trial, the mask, does not help you 50% or more at getting COVID. Now, some of the criticism of the study is, well, what about 15%? And the answer is, well, the Danish math study was not powered to test a 15% difference. You would need a hell of a lot more participants to test a 15% reduction in the risk of acquiring the virus for yourself. So that's a fair, that's a fair counterpoint. Does that randomized trial exist? The answer is no, it doesn't exist. Actually, to my knowledge, it doesn't exist at all. I think that that study 
didn't actually test what they thought. I think that that actually test how effective is asking people to wear a mask? Yeah, correct. Right. It's not like, you know, you're not uh, saying, all right, we're, we're going to sew this on your face and we're going to, you know, we're going to videotape you and make, make sure you're doing it. It's like, hey, if we ask you to wear a mask and give you a mask, does that decrease the rate, the rate of COVID versus what does actual mask wearing do? Yes. Okay. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you that it is not testing what does actually mask wearing do. It tests whether or not when people who are so motivated, they'll participate in a randomized controlled trial of masks, are given masks and told to wear it. And I think the actual numbers were like 46% of that wore them perfectly. Another 40 some percent of them wore it almost perfectly. But probably the thing they didn't do right was maybe you're supposed to change the mask after eight hours outside or something like that. I guess my argument is that that's, I think that's, that's actually quite excellent. I mean, when I walk around, I see masks as chin straps, noses hanging out. I mean, I see really poor mask wearing. I mean, just in my anecdotal experience. So I guess I would say like, the theoretical perfect efficacy study is not the public health study. The public health study really is the is the policymaker study, which is if you know if you randomize counties to being given mask advice, does that lower community spread as people actually comply? Which is going to be really shitty in America because we're so deeply polarized, and this has become almost sort of a political prop. That's the effectiveness question. Um, it, this is not an effectiveness study. You're right; it's not a perfect efficacy study. I would just say, in in my opinion, it's more on the efficacy side of things than the effectiveness side of things. And then the last thing about the study is it doesn't actually test the hypothesis of does my mask protect you, not me. To do that, you need to randomize at the cluster level, which to my knowledge, there is another Danish study that's going on right now in the Guinea and that will, uh, I've been told, uh, give something by, by end of 2021. But I guess I would say that, you know, for as deeply polarized as this issue has been, I'm, I've been a bit surprised, and I'm not the only one, Margaret McCartney at the BMJ and some others have been surprised that there just weren't more studies. I mean, we could have done some really interesting cluster randomized trials in the United States. But anyway, so, I mean, your point is well taken that if you're going to deploy it, you want people to do it well. But I think the reality of public health is people don't always do what you, you wish they would do. And good policy has effectiveness. Good policy works with people as flawed and as broken as they are. When they cheat, when they wear the mask as a chin strap sometimes, when they don't want to wear it sometimes, when they um, you know, still go on, on Tinder dates, when they do all that stuff, good policy still mitigates epidemics when people be people. You know? uh, so that, I mean, that, that's just my view of, of public health. And I think some of what has happened in this public health dialogue is when good policy doesn't work, we say it's because they're bad people. They don't do a good enough job. But to some degree, we have to build our policies, as we've done in HIV AIDS and all these things, around the fact that there's always going to be some people who don't comply 100%. And so you have to account for that, I think. I want to stay on the topic of mass. And you, know, you and I combined have put in a lot of, let's say, central lines. Sure. We're going to even take this out of the operating room where they wear masks. When you put in a central line, what do you wear on your face? Of course, mask. Right, you don't want to breathe on it. I mean, I don't know if that actually makes a difference or not, but it's like, uh, I mean, how could you not wear a mask? I mean, this of is like this invasive procedure, and that's part of the story of medicine. That when you do this, you are as sterile as possible. You are protecting that patient, and you know, you like to think, hey, as citizens, we would like to protect each other, but it's kind of every man for himself, as as we've yeah. seen. Yes. So I'm curious as to your thought on the language surrounding masks versus the data surrounding masks. To be honest, I think, I think it is entirely reasonable to advise people to wear them. But I would, <laughs> I would level with people and just be like, you know, I, I guess I would say one thing is, I mean, I think it's actually reasonable to do some cluster randomized trials and we could actually randomize counties to the following. One county, um, 
no advice. You know, I guess there's still going to be some counties that says that. One county, um, wear cloth mask. One county, cloth mask and face shields. And here's we're going to put a face shield in every mailbox. You know, when you go to the grocery store, wear a face shield. So we can kind of tease out the effect of mask, yeah. face shield, no mask, face shield. You know, all these things. I mean, I think there were so many things that we, we it was missed opportunity. We could have learned a lot of things about non-pharmacological interventions or NPIs for future pandemics. We did not do that. Okay, but let's say you're not, you, you're in a society where we don't want to learn. We don't want to learn what we don't know. We don't need to know. Then I would say that it's entirely reasonable to say there are a number of plausible reasons why wearing this mask is beneficial, particularly in indoor settings, particularly when you're in a crowd of people or around a lot of people. We all want to get back to the world as we can. We all want to get kids back in school. Uh, some of the European countries and, and, and North Carolina, you know, in this new paper in pediatrics, when they got kids back to school, we just asked the kids to wear the mask. Um, so we're just going to ask you to do your civic duty. Put this over your face. Do we have uh, level A evidence that applies in this particular situation? Not really, but you know what? It's a very reasonable thing to do and to try. And, and so let's do it. Let's all get in here and and give this a good shot and do it. I, I always joke on my podcast. I say, you know, I wear masks. I wear pants too. Um, you know, I, we do a lot of things that no, there's never been a randomized trial that I should, should I wear pants or no pants? Uh, we don't need to do all these, you know, you don't always need to do these studies. It's a very reasonable thing to do, to wear. I wear my mask a lot. I actually kind of like it. I like it because it gives me the anonymity I've always craved. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know people come up to you on the street. It's just, um, it's a, such a bother. It's too much. No, of course, as a, <laughs> as an, as a, as a minor, minor B-level oncology celebrity that was happening, <laughs> never. No, uh, but, but no, I mean, my, I mean, I think that some of the messaging to me that I find problematic is, and in fact, there were people who said that this is a parachute. There were people who said that here's a picture of somebody who died of COVID-19 and they found a tweet or a Facebook post where they said, I don't believe in masks. And they hung that picture of them up on Twitter. And they said, this person deserved to die. I mean, not those exact words, but often messages consistent with that this person deserved to die for not wearing the mask, not believing it. That to me is antithetical to being a doctor. I strongly disagree. There are people who died who wore masks. There are people who died who didn't wear masks. It may have some delta on that. It's not enough to condemn a man's legacy or a woman's legacy based on that one thing. We don't, if somebody has lung cancer and they happen to smoke, if somebody has lung cancer that doesn't happen to smoke, we don't stigmatize them. That's not what we're in the business of. But yet I saw a lot of that on Twitter. Another thing I saw on Twitter that I think is harmful on this mask issue, you know, so, I mean, I said my position, I think we should advise people to wear it, but I think how you advise him is important as well. I saw people say, this, this was a gentleman, he was shopping in a Home Depot in Southern Ohio. This is where this gentleman works. He said he went to the Home Depot and Ohio had a mask mandate, but um, there's a lot of people shopping in Southern Ohio, which borders Kentucky without the mask on. And he went to the employee of Home Depot. I mean, I'm guessing a 22 year old making what minimum wage working at Home Depot, having to work during a pandemic because they got to make ends meet. Uh, and he asked this employee, can you go tell this person to wear a mask? You're not enforcing the mask mandate in your store. And the employee said, you know, it's Home Depot policy not to enforce this mask mandate. We ain't going to go confront this guy. And so then this, this gentleman went to Twitter to complain about Home Depot. And there are a lot of people who said we should boycott Home Depot. Look at these bastards in Home Depot. Cancel Home Depot. Cancel Home Depot. Yeah, they yeah. said that. And, and my view on this topic was Home Depot is weighing two risks. One, we live in a country that's divided. There's some people who don't want to do this. So you can confront them. Sure. You can feel self-righteous and virtuous that you're confronting them. And you're getting this 22-year-old to confront them. But how is it going to end? At a minimum, He's going to start yelling, which is going to be spraying particulates yes. of it's going to be spraying coronavirus. OK, are you going to call the cops on him? How's that going to end? Is this guy actually concealed carry? Is this guy armed to the teeth? How's that going to end? I think Home Depot in making their policy 
is weighing two things. Do we want to be known as the store where some of our patrons violate mask mandates and we let them go down the lumber aisle and keep a clear berth? Or do we want to be the store that confronts such a person and there's a shooting in a Home Depot and we don't want to be the shooting in a Home Depot store? So I guess my point is that the person on Twitter complaining about Home Depot is so committed to, I mean, it's just so so wedded to the idea that this is the perfect solution and the only thing that keeps us from the perfect is more pressure on these people to comply that he's missing the forest for the trees and actually recommending a policy that's going to screw us all over. It's going to create more division. It's going to create ugly conflicts. It may lead to deaths on the spot. A Home Depot employee who's not paid enough to do this is going to be asked to enforce this or you're going to boycott the store. This is not public health. I mean, I think that's antithetical to public health. Public health is about empowering people to make the right choices and understanding that sometimes you're not going to get everyone to make the right choices. And all you can do is think about better ways to empower them. I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. You go into a store and there is someone not wearing a mask. Of course. And, and, it, and it has become this bizarrely political issue. I mean, even more bizarre is it was a political issue in the 1918 flu pandemic too. I mean, it's like this <laughs> massing. Now I'll tell you, mask politicization holds up, holds yeah, up holds over up. time. But I, I would say my... You know, there's like all the virtue signaling and this, this, this and that. But my feeling is when I see someone without a mask and I think you don't care enough about others to do this thing that we see as a sound public health policy. So I don't, you know, the data is questionable, but we think like this isn't a reasonable thing. Yes, it's a reasonable thing. And you are so selfish and you are putting me and my family at risk. Yes. You and then, and then it goes, you are killing me. And you think like all this, this is like in a microsecond. Yes. And you think the F you barbs in your mind is like, oh, you just get enraged. And then you just walk by quietly. I, I did, conf- <laughs> I did, I did yeah. confront a guy early on yeah. with this. It escalated within a microsecond. Oh boy. And it was. Uh, so you're lucky. Yeah. And I just like, I was like, oh, I'm walking away. I mean, this, <laughs> I'm not getting in a fight. And I have not confronted anyone after this and you know and then you see the you know the employees in trader joe's who are wearing the like the, yes, the face, face shield, shield thing yeah. and i'm thinking well that's preposterous like well you know what maybe that actually works actually maybe, maybe actually i know i know actually i think like maybe that might be okay but let me tell you a different way i would tell the story i agree with everything you have said it's a reasonable thing to do you know it's totally reasonable to ask people to do and of course i do it i do reasonable things <laughs> you got somebody who was born in a community that's not an urban center. They're growing up at a time in America where the American dream is dead. They're not gonna make more money than their father did, who made more money than his grandfather. They're gonna make less money. They're not gonna have a lot of opportunities. There's not gonna be much of a safety net. There's not gonna be a lot of upward mobility. They are going to feel in a number of ways in, in which the country is leaving them behind and not cognizant of, their, of, of, of what they're going through, not providing them educational opportunities, not connecting them to the world of technology, all these things. They're going to feel this way for a long time. And the reason I know this a little bit because I'm from a little place like this. And they're going to feel as if many politicians have ignored them and, and, and these sorts of things. And then finally, this guy's going to come out this, and tell them a message that the reason why you have been suffering is the other. It's those people. It's them. It's there. They're, they're coming over. They're taking your job. They're coming over. They're screwing you over. They're the ones. They're too PC. You know, they're always want to see how you talk and tell you you're wrong or you're bigoted or you're a racist for every little way. You may use the wrong word here or there, and they want to say you're a bad person. Those are the problem. Those people are the problem. And this person says this for year after year after year, you know, just stoking this person. And then this person says, you know what? I'm not a coward. I'm not a wimp. 
I don't need to wear this stupid mask on my face. And this person makes a great show of it, you know? And so I guess I say, as somebody who is, I mean, I identify as a political liberal, and the way we look at people like a substance, somebody who is addicted to heroin, is we often understand that they're a product, not just of their own volition, but a series of societal choices that have put them in a position to become addicted. We see the same in the criminal justice system. We don't always see criminals, uh, those of us on the political left, as solely a product of bad choices, but a product of failed systems, of failed schools, of failed investments in certain areas. So similarly, I guess I would say, that the guy who's not wearing the mask is a product of a lot of long-standing failures in American economic policy and upward mobility in this country. And so I guess as much as I disagree and as much as I uh, wish they would do the right thing, I do feel that blaming them is not blaming the root cause of, of what drives it all. And the opposite side is that we are products of our upbringing yes. and our training and our education. And it's just... You know, they say, you guys are just a bunch of sheep just following the <laughs> the direction and wearing this mask. Like Which is it, how they may view you. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. What a bunch of idiots. And, and But let's talk about that for a second. Actually, uh, just for a second, just to say, there's a little bit of truth in that, actually. We must acknowledge. That, yes. I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a little story. I drove from Portland, Oregon to San Francisco, and I saw two mask errors along the way. The biggest mask error was somewhere in the middle, I stopped for gas, and it was like goddamn Mardi Gras. People were walking around in close contact. No one was wearing a mask. It was crazy. I was like, where the hell am I? This as if there's no pandemic here. But that's not the case, of course, because the numbers are going to explode. Okay, that's not good. I'm happy to say not good. That bad, bad town. There's a pandemic. Separate yourself. Don't have this party on the sidewalk. Wear a mask. You don't need to all be out here drinking, you know, whatever and hanging out here. Okay, that's bad. But on my way out of Portland, I saw a guy biking up this legendary hill that I biked up many times, and he was there at six in the morning. There is not a soul in sight in any direction, and he's got that mask on over his face, huffing and puffing in like 17 grade on his hill. And I was like, well, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, the data that you ought to be wearing a mask in this precise moment when there's no one around and you're outside going uphill uh, is... I would say very, very weak. And so, I mean, to some degree. So, I mean, that is the other extreme, which is that, you know, it is possible to have these policies that get so draconian from closing the kids' playgrounds, you know, I've seen, you know, cutting swings off playgrounds, you know, that don't actually do what we need them to do, but just sap us of our, you know, that take away, that cause pandemic fatigue. When you're talking about what Home Depot was doing before, it makes me think of something that actually I saw you write, I think you might have tweeted about it, which was trade-offs. They're making a trade-off. And the vocabulary of trade-offs hasn't really made it into the, like the main conversation. It's just kind of, it's this way or it's this way. It's kind of like, well, you know, you do it this way and then just realize you're giving up that. You know, and not everyone is in control of what trade-offs other people are, are yes. assuming. But I think that throughout all this, where you know, trade-offs are ubiquitous, but that idea... I don't know if it's it's suppressed, but it's certainly not in the mainstream. I think that that has been one of the deficiencies of the pandemic, which is that trade-offs is a concept that, strictly speaking, is not a fundamental concept in the field of epidemiology, is more of a concept used in the field of economics and public health. Um, uh, I mean, it, typically, something that we know a little bit in medicine, and it's something to some degree in epidemiology. Um, but I think trade-offs is an important concept, which basically means that, you know, when you're in a difficult situation, sometimes you can take action A, which means a little bit 
of one thing is better, but a little bit of another thing is worse. Sometimes you can take action B, a little bit of one thing is worse, a little bit of the other thing is better. And the answer to trade-offs is that scientists actually don't have the answers to trade-offs. Scientists can tell you, option A, this is what you can expect. Option B, this is what you can expect. But only people through political representation can tell you which of those paths that we ought to do. What do we value? Just like the, only the patient can tell you if the cancer drug's worth taking, if my job to tell them what the benefits and harms are, only the public can tell us what the trade-offs are. I worry that there have been many discussions in the pandemic, school closures being, I think, the key one, Perfect. where there yeah. is a real trade-off that if you open schools, you're helping a lot of poor kids have better futures. There is a very small risk that you're propagating viral spread, but we have a number of studies that have actually helped quantify that risk. It's actually quite, quite low. If you close schools, you have eliminated that very, very low risk of viral spread, but at the price of really doing serious damage to a generation of kids, and not all kids equally, not kids of rich parents who often are in in-person private public schools, sorry, in-person private schools, you're doing disproportionate damage to kids who are poorer, minority uh, in certain regions of the country. I guess I would say on this trade-offs issue, you can tell from the way I I've said it, I, I have a feeling <laughs> that we've made a error. And, and one of the other things that suggests we made an error is that Europe has made the opposite choice in the facing the same trade-off because they really believe in, in sort of these, these sort of justice issues. Sometimes people push back at me and they say, well, the science says we should do X. And I don't like that l framework because I think the answer is science can say what the, the outcomes are and it's people who decide. And, and on the school idea, and you had mentioned this earlier, is an article came out in New England Journal of Medicine. It was two days before we were recording. And the conclusion from Sweden was that despite having kept schools and preschools open, they found a low incidence of severe COVID-19 among children, preschool kids during the, the pandemic. And it was 1.95 million kids, 15 had severe, severe illness and went, to the, and went to the ICU. And almost all of them had underlying medical problems, yeah. You went off, people went off on you, you know, saying like, well, this was during another time of the pandemic when it was low. I mean, and they actually weren't even wearing masks in they Sweden. Weren't. You know, and our schools are about to reopen and there's just a lot of anger around it. The teachers are saying, WTF, we're going to get COVID. And it's just this, it's just this soup of like, what, what are we doing? What's the risk here? What's your take on all this? This Swedish data is very instructive. It tells you a few things. It tells you that when 1.95 million kids attend school from March through July in a setting of community transmission of COVID, only 15 out of those kids were hospitalized uh, with severe COVID. Zero of them died. It also tells you that if you were a teacher, a school teacher in Sweden at that time, your risk of getting severe COVID was the, ascent, was the same as if you had a different occupation. Um, that was also shown in that paper. So I had a lot of pushback. Oh, well, that's Sweden. That's different, blah, blah, blah. You make a good point. They were not even wearing masks. I mean, can you imagine? It might have been better if they wore masks. We have now the data from North Carolina. It came out in pediatrics, I think, just, just today. I just tweeted. I just saw it today. It shows that um, at 11 schools districts in, in North Carolina, whilst COVID was running rampant with uh, case rates of one to two uh, per 1,000 citizens, so actually a brisk community transmission, they had open schools. And one would have expected 800 cases of SARS-CoV-2 to be acquired in schools simply by virtue of that rate of co community transmission, okay? And what they found was only 32 cases were acquired in schools through contact tracing, again, suggesting that schools in this place where used, they used masks, hand hygiene, social distancing, and their conclusion was that even in places of rapid SARS-CoV-2 transmission, that it is quite feasible and safe to keep schools open. I, I think if you want it to be zero, you want too much. It will never be zero. As long as 
we are mortals. There will be some casualty from having schools, from seasonal flu, from deaths from car rides to and from school. There's going to be, and, and from the tragedies that occur, occur in schools all too often in this country, there's always going to be some non-zero risk. The risk is not going to be zero. This risk is actually quite low and is certainly low enough that when it's offset by what school does, we have to remember, this is not Sweden. What I mean by that is we only have one ladder of opportunity in this country, and it is schools. Every other ladder we have cut down. We have uh, upward mobility uh, that is devastating. As, as one economist wrote, the American dream is dead in America. It's alive and well in Canada. Schools is the only thing we have going. Sweden has more upward mobility. Um, Sweden has better opportunities. So if we close schools to take a risk from very, very, very low to zero, we will do far more damage in the long run. And unlike other choices around COVID, this one will haunt us for the longest period of time. All right, Vinny, thanks for your time. I know we're, uh, we're, we're running over a little bit here. Well, we had a good discussion. Oh, my gosh. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Rob. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There, you can also sign up for our newsletter. And I know a lot of you have signed up for it. We've gotten a lot of feedback on our most recent newsletter on your internal vocabulary and why that matters. And you can subscribe to Stimulus and pretty much any podcatcher that's out there. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly... So do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.